Okay, well, thanks for joining us today, Harry. Yeah, good to be back, Bruce. Hey, um, so I want to really talk about a couple things that came up in your recent bulletin that I think are, are the crux of where people can't see the forest through the trees. Um, let's just retract for a minute what's happening in the world between the private system and the government system. And I'm, I'm going to just summarize this for a minute. Essentially, how the private banking system and private debt is the primary failure around the world. And regardless of how it was encouraged or predisposed or condoned, the fact is that loose money from banks created bubbles rather than real consumption demand coming from the inherent demographics of the world. Uh, and the global real estate bubble is, is really the foremost example. So now that we have these banks that are that are crushed by the debts that will never be paid back to them on bubbled assets that they loaned against, governments have to rush in and keep the private sector from failing. And now we finally see governments getting crushed. So you write in your bulletin that we are seeing a very sinister, now this is the hard words, we are seeing a very sinister and consistent collusion around the world where central banks bail out, support and guarantee banks, etc. Why don't you explain that to me? What is the collusion and what's the apparency that uh, is being kept up by this? Well, you know, first of all, I mean, the banks and the government kind of colluded, uh, whether formally or informally, to create this great bubble. The bank, you know, the government's kept lowering interest rates at every downturn and stimulated and encouraged lending to low-income households and stuff, which spurred the uh, real estate bubble. And banks found new ways to borrow and lend and leverage lending so that we had the greatest debt bubble and the greatest asset bubble in real estate and stocks and everything else in, in all of modern history. So they kind of did this together, and now they don't want it to stop because governments will suffer the most and banks will suffer even more if this bubble bursts and all these assets and real estate values continue to fall and loans have to be written off and banks fail and government revenues, you know, plummet and deficits rise. I mean, so, so, so these people are just trying to sustain the bubble, and how they do it is that the central banks – uh, infuse money into the commercial banks and financial systems by buying bonds from them, creating money out of nothing, buying bonds, infusing money in these banks. These banks use this money they get from the Fed or in, in Europe from the ECB or, or central governments there, and they, you know, cover their loan losses and raise their reserves. And then, but there's also this tacit agreement around the world, everywhere, where if, if the central government's going to bail out the banks, then the banks have to turn around and buy their own central government's bonds to keep interest rates low so the governments can keep affording to run deficits and, and, and stimulate and stuff. So, so it's kind of like this, we're going to keep the high, we're going to keep the bubble going, we're going to keep taking more debt, more of the drug, because we just can't face the consequences, which are dire, if this bubble burst. So that's what's happening. And, and, and you have see it in many ways. I mean, QE1 and QE2, $2 trillion uh, in injections into the banking system. And then, you know, uh, and, and the government buying their own bonds and the banks buying their own bonds. And now we've got, like, rates at, at 1.45 to 1.6% on a 10-year Treasury with 2% plus inflation. These bonds are highly overvalued, and interest rates are much lower than they would be in the market conditions, which means, in, 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 to, to summarize, that 
that the central banks first encouraged banks to lend against overvalued real estate and create a real estate bubble. Well, that crashed, and they got creamed in 2008 and 2009. Mm -hmm. Now they're encouraging banks to overinvest in the United States and Europe in overvalued bonds that are being artificially pushed down in yields and up in price, and as are stocks and commodities from all of this bubble and investing. So there's going to be another crash when these things fail and when interest rates rise, when people start to worry about the credit quality, not just of, of corporate bonds and, and stuff, but, but of even U.S. government, Germany, U.K. I mean, Germany's holding the whole bag for Europe as it continues to fail and has to keep bailing it out and raising its debt levels. So there's no risk-free bonds anymore, and bonds are now priced as if they're better than risk-free. They're negative returns. Yeah, that's the... This, this, is, this is a collusion. Yeah, that's the collusion because because there's no way that worldwide debt is so safe as to be priced in the one percentile. No way. Yeah, there's no government now. Germany, Switzerland, United States, UK. In fact, uh, Switzerland is a banking nation. They have huge exposure to a worldwide banking downturn. The UK is also a major banking nation and has high, much higher financial sector debt than the U.S., and has the highest debt ratios outside a total, private and public, outside of Ireland, which is a basket case, and Japan. So, so yes, there are no risk-free government treasuries anymore, yet governments are encouraging people to invest through banks and stuff as if they are risk-free. So this is the next thing that's going to cause the crash. When people realize these bonds are not risk-free, and interest rates spike for some period of time. They won't spike forever because deflation will bring them back down, but they will spike at some point. And then banks and investors that, in, that flock to these low interest rate so-called safe bonds will get crucified just like they have been in stocks and real estate and everything else. So, so it's, you know, it's bubble after bubble, burst after burst. Every time there's a bubble burst, the central governments create a new bubble by incentivizing investing and lowering interest rates and stuff and QE1 and QE2 and all this stuff, and then it just bursts again. But the key thing to note is that we've been saying for a couple of years now that stimulus will get less and less effective. It's like any drug. You have to take more and more to get less and less effect. The key thing that struck me is that the LTRO, the QE2, the injection of money, $1.3 trillion, that was massive, from the ECB into European banks mm -hmm. in late 2011 and early 2012 is already fizzling. That should have bought them another year. It's already fizzling, and Europe's in another crisis, and they're rushing to make all these agreements. To me, Bruce, the fact that they're making these quick agreements over Spain and now over the European Union to save the euro means it doesn't. it's not a sign of strength. It's a sign that the crisis is building in Europe, and they're, they're panicking, and and Germany and everybody's doing whatever just to stave off the crisis, which means a crisis is coming. I think we're going to see in the second half of 2012, Europe's going to stimulate the next great crash in stocks and stuff, just like the U.S. did with our subprime crisis in 2008. You know, I, I understand completely how that could occur, but I have to tell you that our experience is that the mentality in America is still that we are Teflon to everything that goes on in Europe. And you even wrote in your bulletin on page 17 that the ongoing assumptions in Europe and in the United States has been that if we can just get over this big debt hiccup through short-term stimulus, then our economies can get back to normal. So there's two things that I want to ask you about this. 
one is why isn't that true but the other thing that falls into this is is how long we can stimulate because a lot of people feel that the fed is god that the fed can do whatever he wants there's no one that's going to stop him from printing more money or holding interest rates artificially down and i think those two factors go together which is how does how does the day of reckoning come to america in all of this well you know again you know, there is a limit because at some point the bond markets, I mean, the, the U.S. is different from Japan that has stimulated for decades. Japan only has 7% of their bonds owned by foreign investors, 4% by households in Japan. It's all owned by financial institutions, 80% plus in Japan. So they can keep doing this. But in the U.S., we've raised up until recently 50% or more of our bond purchases from overseas. And it's and, and the same thing like, like in Greece and Italy and Spain and Portugal and Ireland. They're in the euro, and they can't just print money. And so their bond rates go up when, when, when they realize, when bondholders, which are also more, a, a lot of them are foreign, realize, gosh, these guys could default. They could uh, go back to their old currency. We could be paid back in half the dollar's value in those currencies. So again, these countries are more invulnerable, the US, Europe, to a foreign run on bonds and foreign runs on bank deposits, especially in Europe. So I think that's what tends to happen. Uh, this European solution recently, okay, yeah, they're going to recapitalize the banks directly. They're going to look to buy sovereign bonds from the emergency stabilization fund, uh, you know, in Europe. Well. Netherlands and, and Finland are already campaigning against that after the agreement. And, you know, how can you keep doing this if foreign investors say this looks like it's going to fail? So, so I think there is a limit because the United States and Europe came into this crisis with generally trade imbalances, budget deficits, all this sort of stuff. Japan did not come into their crisis with that. And Japan went to their 1990s crisis when the rest of the world was booming, which allowed them to maneuver out of it more. But, you know, even Japan uh, today is the most indebted of any major country, the fastest aging population, and they've never come out of their downturn in stocks and real estate and their economy 22 years later. Why? They didn't deleverage debt. They didn't restructure debt. You have to do that to move on. Otherwise, it's like trying to run with a 200-pound weight on your back. You just can't do it. So I think we're not – It is even if we can keep stimulating like Japan did, Japan's stock market still fell over 80%. Their, their real estate still fell between 64 and 87% between residential and, com, and commercial, and they never come out of this. So even if we could keep stimulating, it has less and less effect, and the markets will still – end up and economies will still end up weak because we have weak demographics. That's our primary argument, as you know, Bruce, mm -hmm. that the demographics are slowing, first in Japan in the 90s, and now in this decade in the U.S. and most developed countries. You can't stimulate an economy that naturally wants to save and pay down debt and does not want to borrow and spend because older people don't spend more. They don't borrow more. They save for retirement. So I think you just hit on the crux of two possible ways. You know, when people doubt that the Fed can be stopped and the Fed is never going to want to let a crash happen. He's a study. He's a student of the Great Depression. He's never going to let a big crash happen. 
really, if we go back to the drug addict metaphor, I think what we're hitting on, tell me if I, tell me if I'm, I'm on the right uh, perception of this, which is two things are going to happen to that drug addict. He's going to die a slow death as we've, as we've seen in Japan, which is like, it just goes down and down and it, and they're keeping it from crashing all at once and detoxing, but it's just a slow death or we let, we let cold Turkey happen. We go through the delirium tremens and we come out the other side clean. I mean, is, is, is that the argument of, of possibly where if we don't have a crash in America from all of this, if the fed is just going to keep giving us the drugs, maybe we'll just wind up with a slow death like Japan. Yeah, that's the best case scenario, which which is to me the worst case scenario because you never come out of this. It's better to deleverage debt as Iceland already did by force, and they're doing better after defaulting on debt and devaluing their currency. That's what needs to happen in Southern Europe. These countries need to get real, devalue their currency so they can be competitive again because they're not competitive. They need to default on debts, private and public, and then move on with lower debt levels. That's the best thing you can do. And in the U.S. is the best thing we can do. So I'm hoping that we are forced, because it's not going to be voluntary. That's one thing that's clear. Mm -hmm. Governments around the world, Europe, United States, and China, will stimulate as long as the bond markets and or their voters let them. And I think there could come a point in Europe where Southern Europeans on one side just vote irrationally to say, look, we don't want any more austerity no matter what. We don't care the consequences. And even more so in the northern countries, Netherlands, Finland, Germany, Austria, and stuff that are stronger, they just say at some point the voters don't know how much Germany's going to lose if, if, if these countries exit the euro. They just say it doesn't make sense to us to keep bailing out these weak countries in southern Europe. We're adding debt that we don't deserve, and they just vote or they just riot and say we won't do this. So I do think there's a limit. And, again, bond markets since um, – the United States and Spain and, and Southern Europe have a lot of debt from foreigners. Foreigners will exit. Foreigners will pull their deposits out of their banks much faster than their domestics. And I think the biggest single threat is a continued run on banks in Southern Europe and, and, and Greece and Spain and eventually in Italy. And at some point, how do the how does the ECB and in, in the, in the European nations stop this? I mean. Greece has already lost 30% of their deposits. Spain's already lost 10%. And the ECB has, under the table, been funding this with loans nobody knows about, $270 billion. The central banks in Germany and northern Europe have been giving short-term credit to the central banks in southern Europe, $1.25 trillion and rising dramatically because they know these banks can't pay them back and so there comes the point, I think, that this short-term debt, which most people don't know about, is rising such that it's going to trigger a crisis in the next few months, a mini-crisis or a major crisis in Europe. And I think that's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Okay. So I'm going to ask you two more questions and wrap this up. But, Harry, let's say that the brakes finally come on, that the worldwide brakes come on with this, and Europe has to stop the, the charade and then the Fed has to stop the charade. What is that going to look like to the average American? What is that going to do to the average American's life while we get through that once those breaks hit? Describe America to me at that point. 
Well, you know, it's just like late 2008 and early 2009, the last time the financial system melted down. Stocks crashed, real estate crashed, commodities crashed, gold and silver even went down substantially, oil crashed, and unemployment went up and economies went down. The U.S. triggered a worldwide crisis just with its subprime lending crisis, and now Europe, we think, is going to trigger the next crisis. But again, we're all interconnected with debt and credit default swaps and all types of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there's no way that, that we're insulated or China or anybody else. China is already seeing their exports decline substantially. China's got the biggest real estate bubble and, and, and government-stimulated bubble in their economy of anywhere in the world. So at some point, you know, you, you stretch the system already by all these bubbles and, and easy lending and the boom, but in the downturn, at some point, you stretch the bubble even more by trying to stimulate so desperately. And at some point, you're so stretched that it just takes a shock. You know, some major bank goes under in Europe or another run in deposits in Europe or, or banks in the U.S. start dumping foreclosures on the market and killing home prices because they finally realize home prices aren't going to come back and we can't afford to hold back these foreclosures. Or China's bubble starts to burst in real estate due to their export bubble bursting, you know, on and on and on. Something happens, and, it, and that causes governments to lose control. They're desperately trying to keep the bubble. And, and, and I got that. it going forever. And I got that. But let's go back to the micro scene for a minute. The guy who's working his job at the company, and he's been there so many years, and he's got his 401K. Tell me about that guy. Well, again, you, you've got to say, look, whatever I have in my 401K or whatever I have – and assets, I need to protect them here. I, I don't need to be thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't earn any money on short-term safe investments. Just be short-term safe, earn zero or one or two percent, and protect your assets because assets are going to fall. In 2008, everything went down except for U.S. Treasury bonds, which I think have limits even here, and the U.S. dollar went up. Everything else went down, so you have to protect yourself and say, look, I just want to weather this crisis. I want to keep my job. I want to kiss my boss's ass. I mean, just say it. <laughs> you know, whatever you got to do. And I want to start any business I can on the side. I want to generate income. If I got real estate I can't sell, then I want to rent it out and generate income. If I can sell real estate, I sell it now because it's only going to get worse. So you, you hunker down for what we call the winter season. You let everything fall, and then you reinvest. Um, when things out the other side yeah on the other side and and again protect your job create income and cash flow you can sell stuff to create cash flow you can generate extra income streams you can rent out real estate anything you can do to create cash flow if you have cash harry let let me let me frame that for a minute let me frame that i want to bring come back to let me just frame that with a question for a minute so one of the things that, you know, I know strategically that uh, you really talk about that has to occur in the winter season is this shift from from asset building to income procurement. So tell me why we what does that mean to move from asset building to income procurement? And why is that the way to get through this? Well, first of all, income, you know, income through wages and in your jobs and your profession and through real estate and stocks and dividend you know mm-hmm. that's the way to grow long term we we've been in this bubble 
this bubble boom, which only happens once in a lifetime, like the early 1900s to the roaring 20s, and, and now from like the 80s to the 90s and especially the 2000s, where everything bubbles up. People were starting to think, well, we don't have to work. We just flip stocks, tech stocks. We flip real estate, you know. No, that's not the way. That was a temporary illusion mm-hmm. that happened. You've got to get back into how do I create income? Again, through my education, my job, my business, my real estate. How do I create income? Because that's the real way. You build income. You live off of that. You invest some of that back long term. That's the way to build wealth, not short term you know, gains, you know, windfall gains from real estate bubbling. Real estate pretty much bubbled between 2000 and 2005, I mean, five, six years, same in Japan. That was a short-term thing. Tech stocks bubbled from 95 to 99. This is not the way to look at things. Bubbles are not typical. It happens once in a lifetime. Get out of the bubble psychology. Get out of, oh, if I buy real estate now cheap, it's going to go double or triple again in the next five to ten years. Not going to happen. Japan real estate went down. 64% 64% residential and has never bounced substantially 21 years later. Real estate is about cash flow. Buy it in foreclosure, turn around and rent it at positive cash flow. If you can't rent real estate you buy at positive cash flow, don't buy it. Right. Don't buy it because you think you're going to flip it in five or ten years okay. or one year. Makes sense. Hey, thanks a lot. Uh, have a great holiday, Harry. Appreciate your time, and um, we'll catch up with you again soon. Okay, great, Bruce. Okay, take care. Bye-bye.